Welcome back to the Legacy Podcast. This episode is number 262, and I need to let you know that there has been some uh, big changes in um, my situation, and so that is why it has been such a long time between podcasts. I have uh, several that I am going to be posting here, but I have changed churches. I no longer am pastoring Mount Tabor Baptist Church, and maybe I will write a post or have a podcast uh, here explaining the reasons behind that, but I am no longer attending there, and uh, I left on good terms, and so there was nothing that ran me out. I just uh, felt like the Lord was moving me on to different things, and um, like I said, I will explain that further at another time, but uh, for the next several posts, I'm going to be presenting messages that I preached while I was still at Mount Tabor, and so the first one is a continuation from uh, 261, which is uh, on 1 John, where I was expounding upon that from the pulpit, and this is going to be episode 262, which is 1 John 5, 1 through 5, and um, uh, hopefully it will be good for you. I might have shortened or abbreviated notes in the um, webpage on the post because of time constraints and I've got about uh, 15 that I need to put up here shortly and so I'll be putting those up and then um, I might be able to get some additional material up as well but this is uh, going to be 1st John 5 1 through 5 hope you enjoy and thanks for listening well back when I was growing up I was raised on the Wild World of Sports. You remember that show? And uh, very often, I think it came on every Saturday or something like that, and it was the, uh, they always had some kind of sports show on. But the, the introduction is what I like the best. And it always had the, uh, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And it showed the guy went running across the Rhine, lifting his hands for the thrill of victory. But then it had this picture of the guy skiing down the ski slope, and he falls and crashes, and it says, in the agony of defeat. And every time I, I remember that, I, I, am, uh, I am made uh, very aware of the passages in the scriptures that talk about the agony that we experience in this life, but also the victory that we experience in this life. And so I, I want to begin by asking this question. Are we as Christians to live our lives in the agony of defeat or in the thrill of victory? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Certainly when we consider the persecutions that are taking place and we pray each week for those who are being persecuted around the globe, it is hard for us to see anything but the agony of defeat. And yet I want us to be encouraged today from this passage because in 1 John chapter 5, 
we will see that we are to live our Christian lives not in the agony of defeat, but in the thrill of victory. Because Christians indeed have a victory. And what I want us to see here is three truths about this Christian victory that we can experience. And the first one is this. The Christian victory is characterized by obedience to the commands of God. It's characterized by the obedience to the commands of God. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. It says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And so I want us to consider, first of all, the, the subject of this obedience. And it is his commands. So what does this mean? Well, it means, first of all, that it's not the commands of men. Very often what happens is that we decide that it's not enough just to live under the commands of God. But then we must add to that the commands of men. This was the tradition of the Jews for very long. And in fact, uh, sadly to say, uh, we have a tendency as creatures to want to add to stuff to, in order to try to control people. In fact, if you look at our own nation, we have the law, which is the Constitution of the United States. That's our federal law. It was designed to limit the power of the federal government. And yet what has happened since the founding of our nation and the writing of the Constitution? Law upon law upon law upon law has been passed to where now they don't even have to pass a law. They just write an executive order <laughs> and something has changed. Right. And, you know, it's not just our current president. This has been the case with presidents prior to him uh, in great number. And so it is seems to be the same that was occurring uh, in Jesus's day. They had the Old Testament law. They had what was written by God, and yet that wasn't seeming to be enough. And so what they did is they added to it the traditions of men. Now, I came across in studying for this message this week a website that was uh, written by some rabbis to try to encourage and help explain the understanding of Judaism to uh, present-day Jews. And uh, I, I quote from their website when it says this, as we have seen, the Jewish law includes both laws that come directly from the Torah, either expressed, implied, or reduced. The Torah, of course, is the Old Testament law. And laws that were enacted by the rabbis. In a sense, however, even laws enacted by the rabbis can be considered derived from the Torah. The Torah gives certain people the authority to reach and to make certain judgments about the law. So these rabbinical laws should not be casually dismissed as merely the laws of men as opposed to the laws of God. Rabbinical laws are considered to be as binding as the laws of Torah, but there are differences in the ways in which we apply the laws from the Torah and the laws from the rabbis. So what are they saying? They're saying that we have added to the laws of God our own traditions, our own ways, and they were of equal authority to the laws of man. Is this not what Jesus encountered even in the first century? Very often we see him disputing with the Pharisees because they had added to the law of God with their own traditions. In fact, Mark chapter 7, verse 8, he speaks to them in this way. He says, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold to the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers, the cups, 
and many other such things you do. And so when it says here that we are to keep the commandments or keep his commandments, we're not talking about the commandments of men. Now, it is right that we live under law in this world, and there are certain laws that we must abide by because the powers that be have instituted certain laws. But when we look at the spiritual reality of laws, we must understand that it is his laws, not the laws of men that bind us. But also note that it's not the ceremonial laws that we're talking about. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws. That is, those laws of the Old Covenant, those laws of the Old Testament that foreshadowed who Jesus as the Messiah was going to be. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. When you read the book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus fulfilling uh, the sacrificial system, that he was the one who went into the Holy of Holies to make that final sacrifice, that the priests yearly went in to the uh, holy place and offered their sacrifices. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16 and 17. It says that these laws were shadows of the things to come. That is that they were, uh, they were just images designed to point us to the true picture. And the picture, of course, is Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. It says, Concerning only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Well, what is the time of Reformation? The time of Reformation is when Jesus came to fulfill all these things. And so we see that this is not speaking about the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. No longer do we need to go into altars and sacrifice on the altars certain blood sacrifices. In fact, Jesus made an end to those in 70 A.D. when the temple in the Jerusalem was destroyed and the, all the sacrificial system was done away with. That was his way of saying, see, you can't continue in keeping the ceremonial law. I have fulfilled it. I think it's helpful for us to look at one of the great uh, statements of faith written by the Reformers. Uh, and uh, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith regarding the law. In paragraph 3 it says this, Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions for moral duties. All which ceremonies, ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So when we read this passage here where it says that we are to obey his commands, it's not talking about the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Those prefigure Christ. They are a picture. They are a a foreshadowing of things to come. And they have been fulfilled in Christ. Nor does this commands, I think, speak to the national laws that were given to Israel for a time. There were certain laws that were given to the Jews so that they might live distinctly from the other nations. And by living distinctly from the nations, they were able to then bring in the Messiah. These national laws uh, were not to be followed directly by us. There are some moral guidance that can be found within them. Uh, but they were laws on how to, how to conduct themselves in a nation run by God. I think, again, that same doctrinal statement is helpful for us when it says this. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of the people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. In other words, we can find some principles from the way in which the Jews of old conducted themselves judiciously, but we cannot apply direct 
uh, direct application to that because uh, we are no longer under the same circumstances as they were. So what is he talking about here when he says that those who keep his commandments, what commandments is he talking about? Well, I believe he is talking about uh, the moral commandments found primarily in the Ten Commandments, but also we see it summarized in the royal law of love. You remember the royal law of love in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. It says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second one like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, what he is saying here is he say the royal law of love That summarizes in its entirety the laws of God. That is, those things that we are to command. And is that not what we find in John's writing so often? In fact, the message that we preached right before this in chapter 4 ends with this idea of us requiring to love our neighbors and to love God. And the reason being is because love is of God. And so when he gives us laws, they are designed so that we can love him and that we can love our neighbor. Now, notice the method for us to be able to keep this. Do we, do we keep the laws by our own strength? Do we, do we keep his commands just by trying harder? <laughs> no, certainly not. In fact, the, the wording here, as it's described in verse 2 and verse 3, when it says that we are to keep his commands, the word keep, it carries the idea of a continuous action. That is something that is to be done over and over and over again. It's not as though one day we can keep his commands and the next day we are free from keeping his commands. And so the reality of it is we cannot keep his commands, can we? There's no possible way that we keep them perfectly and completely, especially in our own strength. But by the power of God who lives within us, by his spirit, we are able to do as he commands I think it's best summarized this way. The spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So what are some general rules that we can uh, glean on how we are to understand the Old Testament law and how it applies to us today? Well, first of all, the law is perfect and needs to be kept wholly, completely and Without compromise, Jesus said himself, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We also know that it is spiritual and also reaches beyond just the physical application. That was one of the problems the Pharisees had. They kept the external. They fasted three times a week. They gave alms, all the stuff that was outward displays. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount demonstrates that it's not just the outward display of the actions of the law, but it's also the internal actions of the heart and the attitudes of of the heart that also comply with the law. Uh, also, that one and the same thing in diverse respect is required and forbidden in several commandments. That is, that the duty is commanded, the contrary is also forbidden. So if, it, if we are commanded uh, to, um, uh, to not commit adultery, then it also means that we are to commanded to purify marriages and to strengthen marriages. And so if if one is negative, the other also positive command is also commanded of us. And also uh, it says that if we are to uh, not only do it for ourselves, but we are to do it for others. So if it says that we are to to, uh, uh, honor our mother and father, 
then it also means that we are to encourage others to honor their father and their mother. And so it doesn't just apply to us. It applies to the community of believers as well. So what benefit does the law have for us? Well, one thing it has is that it it informs us of or instructs us regarding right actions. Um, When we look at the law, it tells us what we are to do and what we're not to do. Secondly, it convinces us that we are sinners. It convicts us of how far short we have fallen. What did Paul say? He says, I did not know sin until the law. And so the law tells us what our sin is. And because of that, it humbles us and shows us our desperate need for the Savior. It is a schoolmaster, the scriptures say, to bring us to Christ. And finally, it should point us towards Christ such that we humble ourselves before him and beg for his mercy. And once we realize how much mercy he has shown to us by delivering us from the law, it should make us grateful to live for him because he has done that for us. This then refers to the motivation that gives us in serving him. We are not to try to keep the commandments so that in some way we might gain favor, gain favor from God. But on the contrary, rather we keep the commandments because we have been forgiven by God. You see the difference? Because he first loved us, we then demonstrate our love to him by following his will. When we look at it from this perspective, then the scriptures say his law is not burdensome. And indeed, it is not. It reminds me of the the great saying that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my labor, or for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, that's the kind of delight that we can have in the law of God because we know that he has fulfilled those commands. And this is spoken of us when we love God. Let us then obey the commands of God out of a grateful heart for the redemption that he has given to us and provided for us. In the glory of his name. But secondly, we see from this text that the Christian victory is enabled by regeneration from the power of God. Regeneration from the power of God. We see this not only in verse 1 that we have already read, but we see it also in verse 4 when it says this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How are we to obey God? How are we to live victoriously? Is it enabled by regeneration from God? In verse 1 it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, what is the vehicle, what is it that enables us to live victoriously under God's commands? It is the rebirth. It is regeneration. So what is regeneration? Well, I think here we are well served by looking at the definition given to us in the abstract of principles. Anybody remember what the abstract of principles are? I have referred to that in times past, but it is one of the founding documents of Southern Baptists here in uh, the United States. It was written by James Boyce, and, and um, he, uh, he um, now all of the, the professors at Southern Baptist seminaries have to sign this statement, and it is a great statement summarizing what we believe as Baptists, and in that it refers to regeneration this way. It says, Regeneration is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit 
who quickeneth the dead in trespasses and sins, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the word of God, and renewing their whole nature so that they love and practice holiness. It is the work of God's free and special grace alone. So how does regeneration enable us to live victoriously? It gives us the power to live victoriously. How many of you all have ever had a dead battery in your car? Uh, even over this, uh, this time where we had this snowstorm, I have this, um, this uh, way of uh, making sure that we have some means of power. I've got a, uh, an inverter, an 800-watt inverter, and you can hook it up to the car and, and run the car. And then, uh, of course, you get power from the car. It kind of works as a, you know, a generator because I don't have a generator. It, it's a great program, but you've got to keep the car um, with you know, good battery. And so it happened I went out to go start my car and make sure it was right. And then I didn't start. And then I realized that Mary had gone out to get something from my car and she forgot to shut the door all the way. And so the light was left on uh, the whole night. And so my battery was dead. Well, that's the way it is uh, when we do not have the power of God, when we do not have regeneration in us, we do not have the spirit of God, we are dead. The scriptures say that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We cannot do anything for him until first we are made alive, until first we are given power. And so it is that regeneration comes from the power of God. So who is it then that regenerates us? It is God himself. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born. How are we born? Not of blood. Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the one who brings us life. Uh, How much influence did you have over your first birth? Did you determine the date? Did you determine the time? The location? Did you determine who your parents were? (laughs) You didn't determine any of that, did you? And the same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual birth. God works in us before we can even make a decision. He brings us to life. And so in bringing us to life, we then are able to act upon that life. And so he is the one who regenerates us. And that then brings us to the next idea, and that is, when is it that we are regenerated? Well, I think we can find from from verse 1 where it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves God who has begotten, and so forth. Uh, And the way that this is phrased in the... Greek, although we can't see it in the English, uh, is that it is a perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that it, it took place, the event took place prior to the uh, secondary verb. And so whoever believes is a secondary verb. And so what comes first, being born of God or the belief? And I think it's very clear here from this that being born of God comes first. One is born, again, not by exercising faith. But one exercises faith because he is born of God. Uh, it, the scriptures are very clear that when we were dead, he loved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And he, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses. You know, it's the old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? 
And you can go back and forth. Well, here's the answer to that. You know what came first, chicken or the egg? It was the chicken. God created the chicken, and the chicken laid the egg. So we know that from the scriptures, right? Well, what came first? Was it the faith, or was it the new birth? Well, the scriptures are clear. It was the new birth that came first, and then the faith. So why are we regenerated? Well, the scriptures are good because it always gives us reasons why God does things. And he always does things for a reason, ultimately for his own glory. But we are told that we are, we are born again so that we might experience his blessings, so that we might be able to experience eternal life, that we might be able to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, in John chapter 3, if you recall, when Nicodemus came to Jesus and uh, dialogued with him regarding the new birth, Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are first born again. And so he identifies the new birth as the, as the way by which one is able then to enter into all the blessings of God. Is that not what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, when it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And in verse 10 it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the reason why we are born again is so that we might walk in good works to the praise and the glory of his name. We're not born again so that we can check it off our box. We're not born again so that we might be able to demonstrate to everybody else in the church how good we are. We're born again so that we might walk in the steps that God has prepared for us so that we might be able to bring glory to his name. And so let us thank God that he has enabled us through the new birth to live under his commands and to do so victoriously. Remember that any good that you do is a result of the spirit of God, both who brings you to life and then sanctifies you in that life. And then thirdly, the Christian victory is achieved by faith in the son of God. It's achieved by faith in the son of God. In verses four and five, we read this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so faith is the vehicle by which we are made alive. Now I think it's interesting here that the, the word, root, uh, word, I'll get it here, the root word uh, that is um, consistent with the uh, wording here, and it's the same root word in overcome, victory, and overcome. It's used four times in these verses, and it carries the idea of victory or conquering power. Um, it, uh, it indicates a, a genuine superiority to lead one to overwhelming success. And by the way, it is the same word from which we get our English word, uh, Nicholas. In fact, uh, if uh, our brother was here this morning, uh, his name means people's victory. And so next time you talk to Lucy or Wayne or something like that, you could, you could uh, tell them that their name means people's victory. And uh, that is the, the root word. If you ever heard of Nick or Nikkei or actually in some ways Nike <laughs> it actually carries this same idea from the Greek. And it's this idea of victory. And what is it that gives us this victory? It is Faith in the Son of God. So what is faith? It is conviction. It is a noun when it carries the idea of conviction or confidence. And as used as a verb, it carries the idea of trust. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And again, the Abstract of Principles article on faith says this. Saving faith is the belief on God's authority of whatsoever is revealed in his word concerning Christ, accepting and resting upon him alone for justification and eternal life. It is wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit and is accompanied by all other saving graces and leads to a life of holiness. And so you placed your faith in the pews or the chairs that you sat in this morning. That is, you trusted them to be able to hold you up, right? You, you had confidence. You placed your faith in the, the rules of English language to be able to read the bulletin this morning, right? And so we know what faith is. We know what trust is. It's the, it's the idea of, of putting our confidence in something because of the established fact of what it is. And so, indeed, when we place our faith in Christ, we then are given a victory. And we must ask ourselves the question, on what then is, to our, is our faith to be placed? Should it be placed in men? Should we place our faith in men? Well, we can place our faith in men to do what men do, which is what? Mess up, right? <laughs> now, I'm not talking about, you know, men versus women. Some of you women are saying, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just mean men is in men in general, mankind, okay, right? And, and what do we know about mankind? Can, can, can we be fully trusting in mankind? No. And so certainly that's not the solution. What about governments? Can, can we place our faith in governments? Well, we can place our faith in governments to do what governments do. And what do governments do? Continue to grow in power, right? That's what governments do. That's, that's just the reality of what it is. And I, I got news for those who think that this election is going to be any different, that, that we're finally going to get somebody who's going to make some positive change in our country. Guess what? It's not going to happen. Right? We can't place our faith in governments. What about placing our faith in science? Can we place our faith in science? Well, to some extent, as science, scientists discover new realities about the world that God has created, we can place our confidence in that. But can we place our confidence ultimately in science to be able to be the cure for life? No, we can't. So what is our faith to be in? Our faith ultimately is to be in the Son of God. That is the one. He is the one who brings us victory. Who gains the victory by placing his faith? In him, all those who believe the wording in verse five is very, very clear when it says, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God, that is everyone who believes those are the ones that gain victory in Christ. You know, in our culture, there is this trend of not keeping score among young people. Some of you probably have grandchildren or or, uh, you know, maybe even children or something like that that experience this where you play on a sports team. And especially when they're young, it's the, well, they're just playing for fun. We're not going to keep score. You ever been there, right? And, uh, you, know, you know, you know the dad's on the sideline keeping score, right? Yeah. In, in life, we keep score. That's just the way it is. There are winners and losers. That's real life. But here's the good news. Those of us who are in Christ, we're on the winning side. There's victory indeed. In Jesus. And over what then is, uh, is it that this victory occurs? It says over the world. Now the world is, is Satan's system of deception and wickedness, which is characterized by stealing, killing, and destroying. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? 
He says, I have come that they might have life. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John chapter 15 says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, it would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You see, there's victory. Yes, we may have turmoil in this life. There may be Christians who are being persecuted in other lands, as we uh, mention that every week in our prayer time. There are, uh, there are Christians that are being persecuted in foreign lands. But that does not mean that God has not got the victory. In fact, the scriptures tell us over and over again that the, nothing will prevail against the church. It will continue to win. So how does faith in Jesus give us this victory? Faith in him unites us with his victory. And because he is victorious over sin and death, so when we are in him, we also gain that victory over sin and death. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And since he has overcome the world, uh, we, when we are united with him, gain the victory. Romans chapter 8, that great passage it gives us so much encouragement. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No matter what the difficulty we encounter, no matter what the suffering, no matter what the persecution, no matter what the trial, we have victory in Jesus when we are in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. This is a great passage, and we don't quite understand the depths of what he's communicating here. Um, but to summarize real quickly, what is taking place is he is using the image of a Roman triumph. And when the, when the Roman generals would take their armies out to war and they would have a great victory, Word would be sent back to Rome of their victory. And the Roman general with his army would then lead a procession, kind of like a ticker tape uh, procession, back into the Roman city. And there would be walls of people crowded around the streets, clapping and cheering. And they'd be throwing down different flowers onto the roadway as the Roman soldiers would come along. And as the Roman soldiers would come along, they would trample those flowers under feet. And it would give off a fragrance. And it was known as the fragrance of victory. And here you have it being said that Christ always leads us in triumph. And dis dispels or di um, what does it say? distributes the fragrance of Christ. And it's not like the Roman generals that once in a while would be defeated. He always leads us in victory when we are in him. You know, there's that, that, uh, that great... Uh, spiritual song, Faith is the Victory. And it was written by a Methodist turned Baptist. How do you like that? Um, songwriter. And um, it says this, Encamped along the hills of light, ye soldiers 
Christian soldiers rise and press the battle ere the night shall veil the glowing skies. Against the foe in veils below, let all our strength be hurled. Faith is the victory we know that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory, oh glorious victory that overcomes the world. His banner over us is love, our sword and uh, our sword, the word of God. We tread the road the saints above with shouts of triumph trod. By faith they, like the whirlwind's breath, swept on o'er every field. The faith by which they conquered death is still a shining shield. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory, O oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. On every hand the foe we find drawn up in dread array. Let tents of ease be left behind and onward to the fray. Salvation's helmet on each head with truth all girt about. The earth shall tremble neath our tread and echoes with our shout. To him who overcomes the foe, white raiment shall be given. Before the angels we shall know his name confessed in heaven. Then onward from the hills of light our hearts with love and flame will vanquish all the hosts of night in Jesus' conquering name. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. There is indeed victory in Jesus' name. If you don't know Jesus, uh, if you have not received him as your Savior and Lord, you cannot have any hope. You cannot do anything but hate his law. You're still dead in your trespasses and your sins. And no matter how much you try, you cannot save yourself. You have faith only in those things that are momentary. Those things that will fail in the end. And so I encourage you, receive him today through repentance and faith. Acknowledge that you are a sinner through and through. And that you only deserve his wrath and punishment. Turn away from your sin. Place your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And for those of us who have already done that, then let this be your confidence. Let this be your encouragements. You are destined for victory through Christ. Let's pray. for our nation and bow our heads and pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? One day we'll wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If to 
today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?